Very good morning to you all, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. It is a high honor indeed for me to open God's word for us today. Uh, and in doing so, uh, I, I bring you the, the greetings and the encouragement of uh, both uh, the family, the um, institution I am so pleased to serve, Westminster Theological Seminary, who loves you and prays for you and of Greystone Theological Institute out in the Pittsburgh area as well, and also of my own family. We have often enjoyed the rich blessing it is to worship with you and fellowship with you over these last months as my family and God's kindness has been able to make the move out here from the Pittsburgh area. It really is a joy to be with you and a high privilege to share the pulpit Pastor Huber has been ministering from for so long. Brethren, shall we uh, submit ourselves to God's word in the particular place printed there in your bulletin? John chapter 21, John's gospel. It's the very last part of John's gospel, chapter 21. We will uh, read this morning verses 20 to 23 and... Uh, pay special attention uh, to the words in verses 21 and 22. But as we read the passage as a whole, verses 20 to 23, let us now hear these words for what they truly are, not merely the words of any man, but the word of the living God. Let us hear him. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said unto him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Shall we pause to pray? Ever blessed and faithful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as this is your word and we are your people, and as you have promised to bless and to provide for your people by way of your word in your most powerful and glorious spirit, so we ask that you will indeed do this, that you will have your way among us as this word brings heavenly life to a people so often buffeted by the reality of a pilgrim's life on earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why this text? Why in my first opportunity to bring God's word to you, which may prove to be the last, who knows? Why this text? Why choose the last words of Jesus to Peter in John's gospel? They are indeed the last words John records to us, of Jesus, uh, for us, of Jesus's many rich, fascinating, often curious conversations with Peter in this gospel. In fact, these are the last words of Jesus John gives us at all in this gospel. 
Why focus our attention here? Well, let me not pretend otherwise. I have found these words myself, personally, to be life-saving, life-preserving words. Timely words, time and time again. Aren't there passages in God's word which from time to time you find yourself remembering or going back to because in one way or another they, they laid their hook right into you? Because they, they reach something deep within you? For some people it's the words of Psalm 23. For others, the words of the wonderful psalm we read earlier, Psalm 27. For others, it may be something as simple as verse 15 in John 21, when they had finished breakfast, because they love to do that. For me, the words of verses 21 and 22 contain, as it were, a whole world of heavenly life and light to be inhabited. And yet a world that for all of its beauty is at the same time soberly, sometimes solemnly, real. I read recently that one reason Christians neglect to open God's word is because when they do so, it opens themselves to it. And here in the words of John 21, we have something like the Holy Spirit's soundings of the depths of our heart. And like depth charges that fall from the surface of the water to the, to the far-reaching dark depths below, every now and then certain words in scripture will descend to us in the very depths of our being and will make contact and something blows up. Jesus' words to Peter are not difficult to understand. They are in fact stunningly simple and frankly a bit sharp. In response to Peter's question, Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. They're very simple. And yet, for their simplicity, they are infinitely profound. Why are they so profound? Why do they land the way they do? Well, I think one reason for this is because we are taught, and we are taught rightly, to care deeply and personally with significant investment, to care for one another and for other people. We're taught rightly that among the fictions of the modern world is we are a world unto ourselves, we can go our own way, we can live in relative isolation. The command to love your brethren and bear their burdens is a largely voluntary peripheral thing when it comes to the concerns of my life. Here are the words of God, love your neighbor as yourself, says the second of the great commands. We're taught rightly that no, Christians know the better, the more urgent way. Love your neighbor as yourself. But let's ask this question. Can our hearing that command and our recognizing the urgency that we love one another and invest in one another, invest in those nearest and dearest to us most of all, can that be distorted? 
so that we actually do so in a way that displaces the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of who you are and all of what we are? How do we know what caring and wisdom look like when they are together? Especially in a life that can be so full of loss. The loss of loved ones. The loss of precious friendships. The loss that is the heartache of someone else's grievous sin or folly. We know we are supposed to feel it because we are supposed to care for them and for their welfare and for their well-being. But it's sometimes the case that we are so broken by our common bond with them that when they go under, as it were, it threatens to pull us down too. As they drown, they threaten to drown us as well. What's the remedy for that? Is it like so many in the world would have us think, and many sometimes Christians as well, is it don't get too invested, don't get too involved in people. They're going to hurt you. They're going to fail you. Be ready for it. Don't get too intimately tied up with the lives of other people. Or is there another way? Jesus' sharp words to Peter are the last exchange Jesus has with Peter in this gospel. They are the very last words of Jesus in a gospel that over and over and over again signals in a drumbeat fashion the importance of following Jesus. So what's the background here? Because, brethren, I, I really do think if we hear these words well, whether we feel the impact of a depth charge in our being today or not, these are words that may one day prove to be life-saving. The background here is a few verses earlier. You remember the scene of verses 15 to 17. Jesus and his disciples, they have finished breakfast, wiping their mouths, as it were, with their first century napkins. Jesus then turns to Simon Peter, and they have a private conversation of enduring memory. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And we can imagine Jesus opening his hand and waving it to signal the rest of the disciples around him and around them. Do you love me more than these? Peter says, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And Peter goes, got it. And maybe he puts his head back down and finishes the last morsels of his eggs and ham. He said to him, feed my lambs. Got it. Jesus says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Back up, Peter's head comes from his plate and from his fork. Um, yes, Lord, you know, maybe you didn't hear me the first time, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, tend my sheep. Okay. I'm a little uncomfortable now, but okay. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter is grieved, John tells us, because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, perhaps now pushing himself away from the table of sorts, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then he says this, which sets up the next step of the conversation. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Then John gives us this parenthetical explanation. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. And then after saying this, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. Now, the, the, the key thing to remember is not only the back and forth and back and forth again of a, of a three times asked question of Jesus to Peter, do you love me first? Do you love me more than these others? And then do you love me? Do you love me? It's also that next thing that Jesus says after having made his concern clear. When, when Jesus says to Peter, this is how you are going to end your days. Now, there's a real legitimate question here. Is Jesus describing in a specific way uh, a future where Peter is actually, literally crucified? And that's the sense of the hands spread out. Uh, much like Jesus uh, dies by crucifixion, will Peter die in a way that recalls, uh, will Peter die in a way that recalls Jesus' form of death? That's a very real possibility. And it was taken that way very early on in the church. Fully legitimate reading. Another possibility, though, is that Jesus is simply describing the difference between being very young and being very old. When you're very young, as many of our children in here know from their everyday experience, you don't get to choose what you wear and how you put it on. Your, your hands are put out in front of you and someone else clothes you. They put the clothes on you. You, just, you wear what they decide. You go where they decide you're going to go. You are led here and you are led there. But when you are older, you enjoy the liberty, the agency, the activity, the, 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 the self-advancement uh, in your life of being able to choose what you wear, where you go, how you get there. And then, when you're very old, you find yourself strangely back in that original situation. If you're old enough, you may need someone else to clothe you again. You have your hands stretched out and somebody clothes you, clothes you, puts on what you're going to wear that day. Now, that's a, a, a contrast and a movement of ordinary life. But when Peter's end comes, it will be like he doesn't have control anymore over his future. Someone else will take his hands and shackle them or put clothes over them, will say, stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress him and take him where he wants to go. It may be because he is stretched out as a crucified one. It may be at minimum. It certainly is at minimum. He's being directed in a way he does not desire, and this will be his end. 
The key concern here is that Jesus is telling Peter, this is how you will end your days. And then says simply, follow me. These are dark words for Peter. He's just been told in one way or another how he's going to die. He hasn't been told how long it will take for him to die. So that from this conversation to the day he actually dies, you can imagine how this is hovering over Peter every day. He knows what Jesus said about what it will be like for him at his end. What a thing to hear. Doesn't it make the next thing Peter does a little somewhat understandable? The next thing we read is that here is the group making their way down the road. Perhaps they originally were talking as a group, and now, as happens when you're walking with a group, the group starts to become two or three groups, as the spacing of steps and the passage of time starts to turn you into smaller groups. So we're to imagine that now Peter and Jesus are in their own kind of conversation, while others around them are talking as they're making their way all together down the road. Peter and Jesus apparently are near the front of the pack. And so having heard this, and clearly it's bothering Peter, it's on his mind, as it would be on all of ours, Peter turns in the course of conversing with Jesus and sees behind them that disciple whom Jesus loved, almost certainly the author of this gospel, and John. Peter turns and sees that disciple following them. The one, John very importantly tells us, was the one who had leaned back against Jesus during the supper. In other words, the one who already enjoyed such intimacy with Jesus that it would be pictured with, of John against the breast of the Lord at table. The sight of John behind them prompts the question, that proves to be a sounding of Peter's hearts and ours. Peter sees him. Verse 21 then says to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? You've just told me how I'm going to end my days. And that's a pretty dark story. What about him? How is he going to end his days? Now, what could Jesus have said here? Well, throughout John's gospel, Jesus replies to questions like these, sometimes with a parable, sometimes with some other kind of story, sometimes with a theology lesson about intra-Trinitarian relationships and conversations of sorts between the Father and the Son, sometimes with promises concerning the Spirit or other kinds of encouragement or instruction, which makes for some fairly lengthy passages from Jesus in John's Gospel responding to concerns and questions like these. It's not what we have here. What we have is simply if it's my will that he remains until I return, I come again. What is that to you? You follow me. What's going on here? I enjoy reading food books and other books too, but food books that are like genuine real books about food and the world revolving around it. The other night I was reading my favorite food book. 
reading a passage that I've read a thousand times before in a book by Robert Farrar Capon, The Supper of the Lamb, published in 1969. My favorite thing about this book, and there are many wonderful things about it, my favorite thing about this book is that he has this extensive section about approaching the onion. No, really, it's, it's all about approaching an onion. The very first thing in his recipe, uh, lamb recipe, it's absolutely brilliantly described. The very first thing you do is you, you get the onion out, and then the whole description for page upon page is on the marvel that the onion is. And you need to start by appreciating what an onion really is. Have you ever thought to think about your common, ordinary white or yellow onion? Keep on, well, make sure that you never see an onion the same way again. He describes it. It's the marvel of its layers, its texture, the way it grows, what it can do, how its lines work, where to cut it. And so it's, a, it's a remarkable piece of literature describing the ordinary, everyday onion. The whole concern in this glorious passage, how to approach the onion. And you know how it ends? That whole long, glorious passage ends with these three words. Chop three onions. That always landed really strangely with me, and yet in a, in a, in a, in a, in a positive way. But for the first time, a couple days ago, I read one of the several forwards or prefaces to this newer edition of the book that I own. And in one of these prefaces, the author makes this wonderful observation about that very movement in the book. All of this wonderful explanation of the, of the metaphysical, theological, philosophical um, beauty and marvel that an onion is, and then finishes with chop three onions. And the observation was simply this. Wasn't that striking how it went from there, from here to there? And then the throwaway remark is offered. After all, chop three onions, after all, we live in this world. What's being said there? Sometimes what we want Jesus to say to us in response to a question like Peter's is something like a profound explanation of why it is our suffering will look our way and then suffering of someone else will look theirs. Sometimes we want to know how God is understanding the relations of these things, how this matches up with concerns for justice and, and fairness, and, and what, what has John done in his life that might have his end look differently from mine? What is it going to look like for you to, to rule his life the way you are mine? Uh, I want the theology, I want the explanation, I want you to unpack this for me. Give me metaphors, give me theology, give me metaphysics, I want it all. But sometimes, that's not what we need. What we need is to be reminded that the real world in which we live is not the fancy of our exploration of stimulating ideas. We need sometimes to hear, chop three onions. Jesus' words are hard to hear for those who love the explanation. Temptation, though, with wanting our explanations is that we, before long, demand them. And we demand them because they work for us as something like a condition upon which Jesus can exercise his rule. I have my concerns assuaged, go your way now. When that's exactly the point of John's gospel when it comes to discipleship. The Lord does not withhold 
the theology, the teaching, the wonder of what we need to know. But it all reduces to this. Whether you get it or not, follow him. Follow him. And the way this reminder, follow me, is put, don't miss this, is by first Jesus saying, what is that to you? What is that to you? The meaning of that, that rhetorical question is very easy, very simple, and so difficult. Jesus is saying what you think he's saying here. He is saying in so many words, it's none of your business. I know. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Somewhat sharply, quite directly, Jesus is saying, Peter, we could go on and on about it. But Peter, he is mine. And that's none of your business. What difference does it really make to you following me what I do with my own John? He is mine. I will do what I will with him. In fact, do you not, don't miss the rather remarkable thing Jesus is also saying by, say, by asking this rhetorical question. He is making it quite clear. He and he alone holds the power of life and death in himself for Peter as well as for John and therefore for you and for me and most importantly, the ones we love so much. Jesus is saying, it is up to Jesus how long Peter lives. It is up to Jesus how long John lives and how they will stop living. It is, there's nothing here to suggest Peter is wrong in thinking Jesus may have something to do with that. Jesus is in fact saying, yes, but Peter, he's mine. He's not yours. I will do what I will with my own. You have to trust me here. Your concern is very simple. Follow me. How sobering. How liberating, too, though. How can this be liberating? Well, brethren, have you never had a family member whose illness is so scary? that the very fact that you can do nothing at all about it is horrifying to you? Have you never felt helpless enough in love for someone for whom you would in half a moment give your own life or suffer instead of that son, instead of that daughter, instead of that mother, instead of that father? Have you never had that kind of helplessness grip your heart and your mind and threaten to sink you forever into despair and worse? Have your, has your heart never been broken by that deep bond of friendship you thought you had with someone broken by them without your control, without your role really? And here you have gone suddenly from the richness of a fellowship to the, to the pain of its sudden absence? Do you wonder even now as you sit here this morning what's going to happen with your own prodigal son or daughter who at this stage in their lives have not just walked but run away from the Lord? 
what will be their end? What are the things that keep you up at night because you love your neighbors as yourselves? What are the things that make you sick and give pain to your stomach and your heart because you feel the pain they don't and you wish they felt somewhat? It's hard, isn't it? Not to understand, but to obey what the Lord is saying to us. When our heart breaks for those we cannot save. But isn't it liberating? That the one who says, there comes a point when you need to remember Peter's of the church. There comes a point when we all need to remember that it's the Lord's business, what he will do in the lives of people. And at the end of the day, it is his prerogative, not yours. Our responsibility is very simple. Follow Jesus. But if I do what I'm, what I'm sure in light of God's word is the right thing to do for the church, for me, for my family, I am going to lose friendships. It's going to damage relationships. Follow me. I will do what I will with my own. You, you follow me. But my son and my daughter has this apparently incurable illness. I don't know what their next day will look like. I can't do a thing to help them in their terrible pain and discomfort. I don't know how to reach them. I don't know how to do more than I am doing. What if they follow me? I will do what I will do with my own. The Apostle Paul seemed to get the point. When in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he pastorally addresses, apparently, young women who have been converted to Christ in the context of Corinth, but whose husbands have not been converted, and which resulted then in a mixed marriage situation, where, in context, these unbelieving husbands are threatening or have already, in fact, uh, executed a divorce against that believing wife, which in the first century context in Corinth makes these women most vulnerable to all kinds of difficulties and evils in the world. And these young Christian women are wondering, what, what do I do if this husband that I have committed myself to now wants to cut me off entirely because I'm trying to follow the Lord? What do I do about that? Do I do anything necessary to make sure that bond stays in place? Do I, do I even compromise perhaps my Christian confession? The Apostle Paul's counsel in 1 Corinthians 7 for this and a range of other circumstances. Do your best here. Do what is right. At the end of the day, trust the Lord. Live contentedly with whatever the Lord's providence means for you in your life right now. Hold even your marriage bond under such circumstances loosely enough so that you don't loosen your tight grip on Christ. In so many words, follow him. He will do what he will do with the others. He will do what he will do with your wife, 
with your husband, with your church member, with your friend, your son, your daughter, the people whose lives you have invested in, you are absorbed in, whose downfall threatens to sink you as well. Hold them loosely enough in your profound love for them that you don't lose your grip on Christ. Hold him tightly. Hold everything else, everyone else, loosely enough so that you aren't lost with them. I know that's a strange thing to hear, isn't it? When we have heard rightly over and over and over and over again, rightly, in a timely way, the urgency of love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' concern is that we don't distort that into an argument to displace, to set aside. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength. This may not yet be a word that lands with you the way a discharge hits the submarine. It may not yet reach deeply into you. But brethren, while I pray this is never really the case for you, there may come a day When your love for another is so desperately, so deeply tried, precisely along these lines, that you will know the strong temptation to toss your hands up in the air in despair and say, if God can do that and I don't get it, what then? What then? Maybe it was all wrong. Maybe it was all a sham. Maybe the Lord does not care. When what is happening is the very thing captured not only in Jesus' conversation with Peter, but in God's providence and Pastor Huber's wise psalm selection for our reading this morning, the very thing caught up in Psalm 27, verse 8. You have said, seek my face. Okay. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Brethren, in what way might it be the case today that the Lord's call upon us all and the Lord's call to you, his sounding reaching your depths, the way his word reads you, not only you reading his word, in what way might the word of the Lord prove not only to be sobering for you about the nature of your actual angst over the welfare of those whom you love, but how might it also be a liberating word? How might it open before you the vistas of the rest the Lord alone can give. The green pastures of life and of light which are not enjoyed because you don't care anymore. 
but because your love for your brethren, for your neighbor, for those bound closest to you, is the well-ordered love that is the second and not the first of your great commandments. May the Lord so grant you grace that you too discover something more of the marvel and the wonder of the Lord's grace to his people in a world where sometimes we just need to chop three onions. Sometimes what we need is to be reminded of the simplicity of the call to Christ. Follow me. He will not disappoint. He will not fail you or anyone else. He loves more than you do. And he holds your life and there's in his sovereign hand. He will do right and well. God be praised. Let us pray. We gladly yet fearfully entrust ourselves afresh to you, our Father and our God, and ask with fear and trembling and yet joyful confidence in your character, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we seek that in our own hearts and then throughout the church and the world. In Jesus' name, amen.